So tonight's, uh, tonight's speaker really needs no introduction. That's true if we have some visitors here, but uh, this is not a sermon. In fact, maybe it's an anti-sermon because we're not dealing with a passage tonight, at least not one that's in the original Bible. You just think you see it there. And in a moment, you're going to think you see it on the uh, screen. But the staff decided that uh, since we see them in our Bibles, it probably made sense to uh, explain why uh, we weren't going to preach on them. And so they called on Blomberg. (laughs) So let's read them together, and then I'll say a little more about why they're not really there. (laughs) The lighting up here is horrible. (laughs) When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in My name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he was at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. In the updated NIV, I then do have a footnote. It says some manuscripts have the following ending between verses 8 and 9, and one manuscript has it after verse 8, omitting verses 9 to 20. Then they quickly reported all these instructions to those around Peter. After this, Jesus himself also sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Amen. So what's going on here? I have to... uh, do the best I can to introduce you in a very tiny, safe, harmless dosage to the art and science of textual criticism, which involves collating all the known manuscripts of any ancient document and uh, seeing if and where they differ and then reconstructing what would have been originally written. You've heard that statistics uh, can be used to prove just about anything. 
And Bart Ehrman, a famous skeptic who wrote a book misquoting Jesus that in 2006 made the New York Times best-selling list to top 10 for much of the year. That's not supposed to happen to a book on textual criticism. Makes the comment that there are over 600,000 variants. Well done. I talk and things mysteriously appear behind me. In the New Testament alone. And the uninitiated read that and ask, how in the world can we trust it? But you see, there are over 5,700 Greek manuscripts of any or all of the New Testament, and that number swells to over 20,000 when you add in other ancient languages that the text was translated into and books in which it was quoted and lectionaries that gave readings for the church from the scripture week by week throughout the year. And now if I divide 20,000 into 600,000, that's only an average of uh, 30 per manuscript. The vast majority of which are uh, duplicated uh, hundreds and even thousands of times over, and the vast majority of those are very minor matters of spelling or accidentally omitting a letter or writing a letter twice. In fact, kind of interesting, the kind of typos we make today uh, even with high technology, are basically all the same kinds the ancient scribes meant. Just it's a heck load easier to erase them now. So that giant number of 600,000 actually shrinks all the way down to 1,200 variants that the standard editions that... Uh, People who study the New Testament in Greek, like some who go to seminary, yea, even a couple I see in this room, see in their copies that affect meaning in any slightly significant way where there is even a tiny question among commentators, which is most likely to be the original. And when I come to a typical translation in English, like the NIV, that number shrinks to, uh, in the New Testament, about 130. And if you're curious about them, just read the footnotes. Look for the places where it says some manuscripts and then gives an alternative reading or other manuscripts or something along those lines. Only a couple dozen affect even as much as a whole verse. And there are only two that involve a whole short little story. One is in John 7:53 to 8:11 and is the famous story of the woman caught in adultery which most likely is a true story that was preserved by word of mouth and added by scribes a century or two after John wrote his gospel. But this ending of Mark I hope isn't original. I don't want to get into drinking strychnine or uh, twirling snakes, cobras, water moccasins, pick your favorite poisonous viper. So how did it get there? Why would anybody add it in? And that takes us right back to what Jesse talked about so wonderfully last week. The strange way that the first eight verses of Mark end his gospel. No actual 
sighting of Christ leaving the tomb? (laughs) Was it a Superman blast on the rock? Was it a transporter room appears outside and rematerializes? How did it happen? Nobody was there to see it and nobody has told us. But at least Matthew, Luke, and John go on to describe one or more appearances of Jesus to somebody. Mark doesn't even do that. The young uh, man who's dressed uh, entirely in white. I think I will remember fluorescent boy for years. That was a wonderful expression Jesse gave us last week. <laughs> Looks like an angel, and uh, one of the other gospels says it was. Duh. <laughs> says, don't be alarmed. In verse 6, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter was one of the disciples, but he's also the one who denied him three times, so he gets singled out for special mention. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So we've got a prediction of a resurrection appearance. But unlike the other Gospels in the New Testament, we never get to read about it actually happening. Mark ends, strangely, with verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And I think it was a couple weeks ago that Mike reminded us that um, the male disciples of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark haven't always looked that great. One betrays him, one denies him. They all flee in the Garden of Gethsemane. An unnamed young man wearing only his uh, night robe leaves and somebody tries to grab him and he runs away naked leaving his robe behind and we say, why are we told that? And the church has wondered ever since it began, was that Mark's little narrative signature himself? At any rate, they're scared. They abandon. But women come across pretty good throughout the gospel. Until the last verse. Maybe this is Mark's way of saying, sooner or later, we all deny Jesus. We all are afraid. We all feel like failures. Equal opportunity failure. But of course, this isn't the end of the story. And Mark's audience, the Christian churches in Rome in the 60s of the first century, if we can believe what second century Christian writers tell us, Mark's congregations would have already known the rest of the story. They knew that Christ did appear on several occasions, that he commissioned the disciples, that he ascended into heaven. They would have Heard the story of the disciples spreading all over the world, including as far as Rome. That's how they became believers. So Mark's not cheating them out of important information. He's just ending surprisingly abruptly. And we'll come back to that. But obviously some uh, scribes couldn't handle it. Got to give Mark a proper ending. What they did is really just a collection of references to what we read about in the other three New Testament Gospels, for the most part, appearing first to Mary Magdalene. We read about that in John. 
out of whom he had driven seven demons. Luke 8 tells us that little bit of information. The fact that the 12, minus Judas, didn't believe when the women reported. We read about in both Mark and Luke. Jesus appearing to two of them while they were walking in the country sounds suspiciously like the story in Luke 24 of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that Jesus appears to and then leaves them as they're beginning to eat dinner. Rebuking the disciples for their lack of faith. Sounds like... uh, What happened to Thomas extended to the rest of them in John 20. Verse 15 sounds like the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And the last two verses that are now numbered 19 and 20 sound like uh, Luke's account of the ascension and the ministry of the apostles afterwards that uh, fills the pages of the book of Acts. It's pretty obvious that the other Gospels had all been written, all in the first century, and sometime in the second century, which uh, is the first time any of this appears in any manuscripts, uh, somebody took a combination of uh, key pieces from the other Gospels, pieced them together to create what they thought was a proper ending. except for a couple of weird verses. Some weirder than others. Verse 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That sounds suspiciously like the doctrine that began to develop in the mid to late second century that you had to be baptized in order to be saved, which would eventually become Roman Catholic Church doctrine. But you don't find that uh, anywhere else in the Gospels. So there's another telltale sign that this is something later. These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. Jesus had commissioned the 12 and later 70 disciples on trial runs of doing mission around Israel while he was still alive and told them to cast out demons. Book of Acts describes them continuing this after his death. So nothing Terribly surprising there. They will speak in new tongues. Well, there's no other gospel passage that makes that promise, but we do read stories in the book of Acts of uh, believers on certain occasions speaking in unknown languages. And 1 Corinthians describes the problem it became in the church in Corinth. So that has points of contact with other parts of Scripture as well. Wouldn't have to be at all concerned about this passage, except for half a verse. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. A few weeks back, Mike uh, showed us what he told us ahead of time was going to be a nine-minute video clip. And so uh, I haven't asked him permission to do this, but the rest of the staff didn't object. I also have a nine-minute video clip, and if you'd like to watch it, uh, go to YouTube and type in the snake handling. If you do snake handling, you'll get lots of stuff. But if you do the snake handling, you'll go right to it. Look for a nine-minute video clip. It's from the History Channel. Uh, 
Those of you who know uh, country and western music better than I do will, I'm told, recognize the narrator. There seems to have been, uh, in the second century, at least there are a couple of statements in early Christian writers that are a little hard to decipher, that suggests there may have been people who uh, already then read about how Jesus conquered the serpent who was the devil, about how when he sent out the 70, he said they will tread on snakes and scorpions, which is a little different than picking them up and playing with them, but probably a, a metaphor for saying, The kingdom of God, which is coming in Christ, overthrows the devil. Good triumphs over evil. But if all you know of is the King James Bible, if all you've ever been taught is that it's the only one and right version, and people like us who read other things are liberal heretics, then uh, you'll come to Mark 16, 19, and uh, take it at its word. And uh, are we ready to uh, almost? What you'll see is uh, what has resulted, particularly uh, in the 20th century, particularly in the Appalachian mountain areas of the eastern part of our country, eventually outlawed in every state except West Virginia, where today there are about 2,000 members of fringe charismatic churches that still practice this half verse. Let's watch. Faith runs deep like a river through Appalachia, and the water's wide, filled with a diverse mix of Christian faiths, dozens of different Pentecostal and holiness churches, and upwards of 80 separate Baptist faiths, each with its own unique tradition. But what they all share is a fundamental faith in the Word of God and a strong belief in the right to religious freedom. This is the story of one of those homegrown churches and its hundred-year-long fight to be allowed to practice what they preach. In small churches scattered through the mountains, speaking in tongues, drinking poison, and handling deadly serpents are sacred rites of worship. These men and women follow the literal Word of God as set down in the Book of Mark. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. There's nothing goes on in this church that's not taken from the Bible. We don't add no rules or nothing. If it's not in the Bible, then we don't accept it. For the last 100 years, these true believers, known as science followers, have endured derision and risked arrest, jail, and even death to practice their beliefs. I am going to do what's laws of God is in it. To take up servants, I want to take up servants. If I believe, I'll do it. Snake handlers are an extreme example of a hallowed Appalachian tradition, homegrown, Fiercely independent churches that answer to no one but God. This tradition was born on the wild Appalachian frontier in the 1700s. Traveling preachers set up tents and invited all comers to join in raucous emotional communions. These emotionally uplifting experiences inspired communities to hold their own grassroots services. By 1900, Appalachia was home to hundreds of independent, non-denominational churches. Simple and unpretentious, they were as humble as the hill folk themselves. 
That fiercely democratic spirit lives on in today's mountain churches. If somebody's preaching against something and somebody doesn't like it, they go down the road to another building or build a little building and form another church. So it's real easy to do. That's how the snake handlers got their start a century ago. The mountains are thick with venomous snakes, and the Bible is full of references to deadly serpents. For one mountain man, this was no coincidence. It was a sign from God. In 1910, 30-year-old George Hensley, an ex-moonshiner, was studying the Bible to reform his sinful ways. The story goes that he went out walking in the mountains of eastern Tennessee, ruminating over the meaning of those disturbing verses in the book of Mark. And he was struggling and, 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 and prayerfully meditating on the gospel of Mark's when suddenly there, a rattlesnake appeared, and a, a fortuitous event, and Hensley picked it up and was amazed that he could handle it just exactly like the text said. It was a revelation, man enacting God's will on earth. You're in the mountains, you see a, a serpent there, and if you believe it's strong enough, you just go up there and pick him up, it won't hurt you. I think that's pretty powerful. The Word of God is powerful. Hensley began handling snakes in churches and revivals throughout the region. The practice caught on, and by the 1940s, the exuberant services were attracting thousands. At the time, with big outside companies increasingly controlling the land and people's lives in cold towns, the traditional fabric of mountain culture was being ripped apart. Strong religious faith helped hold it together. Sharing in forms of worship they themselves had created, the mountain people could find meaning in a world termed topsy-turvy. In 1955, at a revival in this makeshift barn church in Florida, George Hensley was bitten by a large rattler and died the next day. The coroner listed his death as suicide, but the faithful believed Hensley was in the hands of a higher power. Somehow God was in that. And what is greater evidence of obedience to God if that if you died while taking up a serpent. So then your salvation is assured. No one who picks up a venomous snake doubts the danger. Dewey Chafin belongs to the oldest signs following church, located in Jolo, West Virginia. He began handling snakes in 1954, and his scars show just how seriously he takes the risk. And then that one, and that one there and this. Throw this thumb in here. They, this year, this, there's more pain this day I've ever had on anything. Dude's been bit 168 times, or 170 times. He's been bit with black rattlers, yellow rattlers, copperheads, uh, cottonmouths, and God's took care of him every time. Dewey has nearly died many times over from venom poisoning. He's never received medical treatment, and he's always recovered. Many have not been so blessed. More than 100 people have died from snake bites during religious services. In the 1940s, a rash of deaths led the state of Tennessee to ban the practice. Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia followed suit. Over the next 20 years, police repeatedly raided mountain churches and revivals, trying to stamp out what the authorities considered a dangerous, even deviant practice. But the handlers refused to back down and kept right on with their worship, defying the authorities. In the Appalachian Mountain, yeah, the, the more fundamentalist traditions would say that man's laws are fine, but they never can supersede God's laws. The struggle with the law came to a head in 1961 in West Virginia, when Dewey Chafin's sister was bitten during a service and died. 
In response, West Virginia lawmakers proposed legislation to outlaw snake handling. Still grieving, Dewey's family decided they must act. Dewey's family went to Charleston, and, and, and they was up for a long time at talking to them people and, and convincing them that's our, our right. See? We came out of here. For God come out of here. As far as the state was concerned, the law was not passed against serving them. West Virginia is still the only state where snake handlers can practice without breaking the law. Today, only about 2,000 attend snake handling churches, compared to more than 3 million Southern Baptists and Pentecostals. Appalachians don't like people to think that Appalachia is full of serpent handlers, right? They don't want to be defined by serpent handling. But what they do do that a lot of other places don't do is they respect diversity and respect the handlers. None of them would be opposed to the Serpent Healing Church being here, but none of them would support the practice. However small in numbers, the snake handlers are a potent symbol of the unshakable spirit of religious freedom and tolerance shared by the mountain people. Wow. <laughs> now, who brought the snakes for tonight? No, no, it's just... It's easy to, uh, to chuckle. And yet, as we heard, a lot of people have died. And the gentleman who survived the 170 snake bites but was close to death several times um, really didn't experience uh, what this passage says. It will not hurt them at all, not even close. How much better if they could realize and believe that uh, there is a history behind this passage, that it's almost certainly not what Mark originally wrote, and that they can be completely faithful to the Word of God without having to follow this because it's not Part of the Word of God. Crept in at a later stage. The uh, King James translators who worked with dozens of the very best manuscripts they could get a hold of in 1611 produced a phenomenal product, but now we have thousands, tens of thousands, and uh, don't have to do the same thing. So I'm sure what you will remember more than anything I say from tonight was the video. That's just the way videos work. But please don't go away thinking the purpose of the clip was to endorse snake handling. I want to end very differently by going back to verse 8, which Mark did write, which apparently caused these problems in later centuries that led to a longer and seemingly more proper addition being added on, except that whoever first produced it happened to misunderstand the bit about snakes and their poison. Could Mark really have intended to end by saying, trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from that place, from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid? 
Mark is the gospel more than any other that regularly describes the fear and failure of many of Jesus' followers. This is no different. It fits. Mark, we're told, was written probably uh, either just before or early during the first Roman state-sponsored persecution of Christians in Rome and other places in Italy in the 60s of the first century. I suspect every one of them was afraid. Would they have to uh, put their life on the line for their faith? I suspect uh, every one of them wondered, if I'm in a public place and it's confess Christ and die, will I be silent and say nothing to anyone? Maybe some already had and felt horrible about it. I think Mark is saying, don't over-chastise yourself because even the closest followers to Jesus, men and women alike, had their moments, sometimes repeatedly, of fear and failure and feeling like failure. And yet, look, in the last 30-some years, from Jesus' death in AD 30 to the decade of the 60s, what an amazing movement his followers, by the power of the Spirit, have created. God can start anew with anyone. No matter what you've done, no matter what I've done, no matter how insecure you feel, how powerless you feel, how much you feel like a failure, how much you know you've rebelled against Christ, as long as the breath of life is in us, the last word hasn't been written. So what's the point? You've already read it. Fear and failures don't have to be the last word. They don't have to be what defines our life. Most of you, at least well over half, barring something unexpected, have well over half of your life left to live. And then there's people like the Swangers and us and a few others <laughs> that, barring some medical miracle, are definitely beyond the midpoint. <laughs> but we may still have decades to go. We hope so. Don't look for something new and exotic, even snake handling to produce that transformation. Look to the tried and true, old-fashioned gospel story that all those songs Dave and the group played so nicely remind us of. I want to uh, do what we do sometimes, and it will require uh, participants speaking in a loud, clear voice. I don't have a roving microphone, but if uh, there are a few questions that some of you would like to ask, if it's about the history of snake handling, I may or may not know the answer. <laughs> um, if it's about the text in Mark, I can probably help out. Right here, please. Yeah, it, it's quite possible. Um, in Acts 27, Paul and the people on the boat that are shipwrecked on the island of Malta, 
um, make it to shore, a fire is made to warm them, a viper comes and bites Paul, and everybody expects him to die, but he doesn't. Um, it may have been an event like that that uh, inspired some later scribe to write this up, but you're right, it's a far cry from witnessing a miracle to saying, um, right, Jim, go uh, do it every month at church. Yeah. Um, the first known instance of it comes in the third century, and it wasn't very long before the Christian church became under the Roman Empire, dominated by Latin-speaking people, and so it was included in the Latin church that was the Bible for a thousand years until the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. So, yeah, it goes back a lot further than just... Uh, what we saw in the video clip in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Sorry? Well, it's not like there was uh, a group of Muslim clerics uh, carefully making sure that every new copy was uh, produced as perfectly as possible. Um, scribes were all around um, the ancient Roman Empire, and even slightly beyond. And uh, there were local bishops and pastors and elders of different kinds and different congregations. And presumably, whoever first included it uh, had the approval of his immediate overseers, and it caught on. It wasn't until the um, middle of the 4th century when you start to have anything at all like a, a kind of church-wide oversight um, of copies being made of Scripture, and then the variants become very, very minor. So we don't know the particular circumstances, but uh, there was enough freedom for something like that to happen. Remember, though, only once. This is the only passage like it. Don't suddenly start doubting everything else. Yeah. The other one reference is uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery, which, as I said, probably was uh, a true story that just didn't get included in any of the four Gospels and then later was added in um, where uh, a woman is about to be stoned by some... Uh, Pharisees and Jesus comes on the scene and uh, they want to uh, see what his reaction will be. And after a mysterious time of writing something in the dust that we're not told about, uh, he says, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone and one by one they all walk away. And then he turns to the, the woman and says, uh, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Um, other than that, uh, and if you flip through any modern translation of the Bible, you can see the other main little ones in the footnotes. There's just those, that one and what we've been talking about tonight. Todd, you had your hand up. Right. The, uh, the reason I said that is because, um, and, and it's not me, it's uh, pretty much a scholarly consensus. Um, Jesus forgiving a person whom others were condemning was so distinctive and so characteristic to his ministry as we find them in all the undisputed passages in the four Gospels that it's hard to imagine anybody else of that world making this up if Jesus didn't really do it. Um, it's uh, not made up of lines or verses or phrases that allude to other stories in other Gospels. It doesn't seem to be a, a patchwork quilt of references. It hangs together as a 
very coherent, very dramatic little short story. The longer ending of Mark, you could pick up just about any verse, take it out, and you wouldn't necessarily feel like you were missing something. It, it seems to require all the other Gospels to be in place and picking from them and then adding this mystery snake bit. And it creates a theological problem that nothing in the story of the woman caught in adultery does. So those would be the major differences. Yeah. Great question. It's been debated throughout the history of the church. Um, there have been people who have uh, um, thought it was an original from the first time it appeared. However, in the history of English translations of the Bible, from 1611 until the late 1800s, there were no other church-sanctioned authorized translations. Individuals at times produced them, but none of them caught on. It's really been only for the last 120 years or so that people have produced other translations, both to update the language into modern English, but also to go back to uh, the thousands of manuscripts that we now know about. And so one of the things that uh, happens to translators is... They become very conservative. They become very gun-shy about taking radical steps. Um, if you go down to the place where Marcus and John's mom works in Colorado Springs called Biblica that co-produces uh, the NIV, they've got one little room that's uh, memorabilia and a little museum of what began 200 years ago as the New York Bible Society and then became the International Bible Society and then became Biblica. And all of the stuff goes in chronological order until the very last display is a copy of the NIV that came out in 1978 with a bullet hole shot right through it that was sent back to Biblica by somebody because these people dared to tamper with the King James. That's an extreme example. It doesn't happen every day. But if any modern translation were to remove these words altogether, there would be a firestorm of protests by the King James-only people and the general feeling is it's not, it's not worth it. Put it in a different font. Put a disclaimer there. Let people read it. And don't be a masochist. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 I'm answering it. You're right on all those counts. By saying it wasn't the original, we're not saying it was inspired. We're not saying it's inerrant. We're not saying we have to obey it. All the other things that sound like they'd be good things to obey, go into all the world and preach to every creature, we can find those commands plenty of places elsewhere. Every doctrine that uh, is uh, central to the Christian faith, every bit of ethics that is uh, part of the Christian heritage is taught in countless passages that have no variance at all, no disputes surrounding them. Um, if you want to promote baptism, there's plenty of passages for that. Um, but uh, the Christian doctrine of inspiration has always been um, whatever the original writers first wrote is what is authoritative and inspired. And where others have come in and added or deleted or changed, uh, it's our task to do the best we can to go back to the very earliest, which is what modern English translations have attempted to do. And that's what Christians are bound by.
it, it wouldn't be considered inspired, even if it perhaps turns out to be a true story, just like there's a lot of things in history and in Christian history that we can learn from and that are very inspiring, but not necessarily uh, on that unique level of, uh, of the inspiration of Scripture. All right, good clarification. Let's go here. Take one or two more. All depends on how you interpret one or two troublesome texts. And so um, I remember when we first moved to town, 1986, the next year, Billy Graham was still young and healthy, or at least middle-aged and healthy, and did a series of crusades at the old Mile High Stadium. And one night we went there, and after the service, uh, as people were starting to file out, uh, the PA system came on and said, uh, you need to be aware that there are people in the parking lot distributing religious literature that do not represent the Billy Graham Foundation. And I thought, oh, I wonder which cult has gone there. Is it the Jehovah's Witnesses? Is it the Moonies? It was a local independent Baptist church that was damning Graham for not preaching the full gospel because he didn't say you couldn't be saved until you were baptized. And uh, one of the texts uh, in their little tract was... Um, Peter 3.21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Trouble was, I didn't even quote the whole verse, much less the context, which goes on to say, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. In other words, it's the outward sign of an inward change of heart. Um, so, yes, there are other texts that can be twisted into that direction. Not many, but uh, many people who do support the idea that you have to be baptized to be saved go right to Mark 16 because it's so clear. I think I saw one more hand. This will be it. And then we'll do something more edifying. Uh-huh. <laughs> you mean with respect to textual variants like this? Um, probably the simplest introduction that I know of, it's barely 60 pages, is a tiny little paperback by a man named David Black, who teaches at Southeastern Seminary um, in North Carolina. And it's just called An Introduction to Textual Criticism. And it's about as simple and straightforward as anything I've seen. Worship team, are you, there's one, there's two, this is exciting, come up and lead us. <laughs> 